Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to Galatians chapter 4. We had gone over our theme last Sunday, which was look up, look in, and look out. And last week we were looking in as we were thinking about Jesus' command to the church, which is to love one another as he has loved us. Simultaneously, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and I'm really surprised that we're as far into the book as we are. And today we're going to tackle about six verses in Galatians chapter 4, as we're just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, getting to know God one line at a time. And um, I've, I've been having fun. I don't know if you have, but <laughs> it's been fun studying this book. And um, we find ourselves in a section where Paul is, he's becoming transparent, but you could kind of see as he's kind of the spiritual mentor, the spiritual father of this, of these churches. It's not a church, as I've said multiple times, as you already know. But these born-again believers, he's really, he has a heart for them, and now he's trying to appeal to them on another level, because as you know, what was taking place is he rolled into town, um, and he's been there more than once, as we'll, we'll see that here in these scriptures, and you could compare that with other scriptures in the book of Acts primarily. But he came there to these, these, this cluster of churches scattered throughout this region of Galatia, and he shared with them his heart. He really had a heart for these people. He really wanted them to not only know Christ, but to grow in Christ. Don't you think that's, that's something to where it's one thing to give someone the gospel and then for them to receive the gospel. What, well, what do we do after they get saved, right? And so what was happening was they were receiving Christ by grace through faith, realizing it's all of Jesus and none of them. And then when the apostle left, there was other people that came behind him and said, well, it's not so simple. It's Jesus plus you fill in the blank. So they're like, well, yeah, that's okay. You could receive Jesus, but you're also going to need to receive Moses. You're also going to need to be circumcised. You're also going to need to observe the Sabbath. You're also going to, you update it today, and it's also you've got to have your hair a certain length. You've got to wear a certain clothes. You've got to stop doing certain things and start doing other things, and you've got to have this discipline and that discipline. And by the way, here's another thing in the name of God, in the name of religion, and so they kept burying the Galatians under the weight of not only the law of Moses, but the doctrines and commandments of men. And so Paul is really, he's concerned for this group of Christians. And so he says in Galatians chapter 4, if you'll turn there, verse 12, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you, and you've not injured me at all. And I think what he's doing there is appealing to them. And he's like, look, I, I cast off my Judaism. And you could read his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, how he's the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Jew of Jews, and, you know, concerning the law, blameless. And, I mean, he was the time-life man of the year in Israel, probably like 10 years in a row if they had such a thing. As like, he's like the Jewish poster child. And he's like saying, I put that aside after I received Christ and Gentiles didn't know anything about Moses. They, didn't, they weren't, you know, on the Sabbath going to a synagogue, daily reading the, the Torah or the Pentateuch. And so he's saying, basically, I became as you are, become as I have, 
for I've put that stuff off. And he says in verse 13, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first, implying there was a second. And we know that from the book of Acts, that he's, he's been there more than once. But he had this problem. He had a physical infirmity. And he says in verse 14, And my trial, which was in my body and my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God. Now, we know the word angel is often referred to as messenger, right? Even as Christ Jesus. In other words, you received me as Christ's messenger. Um, and I think it's important to know that that it's important to receive the messenger, but more important, it's important to receive the message. And he came with the message of Christ. Because look, for me, it's not about me. Look, I've got like, I, I've got an ego. I've got sensitivity. I, you know, I want to be like, I want to be like-liked. <laughs> like, like me for sure. I want to be liked. Uh, I want to be accepted. I want to be, you know, I would hate to preach in situations where there was severe persecution um, and consequences for doing what you're doing. And I felt a little bit of that. I mean, you know, George and other mission people have done missions. I don't know if, if you guys have experienced any sort of persecution, but everyone except the Apostle John got killed for preaching the gospel. I mean, you know what I mean? That's pretty severe, um, including Paul. He lost his head. So um, he's... Uh, he's saying, you guys, you guys received me, and despite his infirmity, and most, most scholars would say it was some sort of eye ailment back in the day, kind of typical and untreatable. It's not like they had LASIK surgery, you know, or, hey, Paul, just put in some, like, contact lenses, change your disgusting eyes. Ooh, gross. It wasn't like he had those options, and so whatever it was, whether it was a pussy sort of eye ailment, whatever it was, it was kind of almost off-putting the way you read into this, and I might be reading into it, but most scholars would agree that that's kind of the situation, and we'll look into that, but I don't really want to major on that at all. It's, it, it, whatever it was, um, the messenger, he said, you received me as the messenger of Jesus Christ, and he says, um, what then was the blessing that you enjoyed? For I, I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So, I mean, the implication there, this is an ancient proverb, too, to where some people would say, well, might not have been his eyes because that was a common, uh, a common thing to say in a proverbial way to say that your eye is probably the most dearest part of your body, right? And to sacrifice your eyesight to someone is basically to give them the highest sort of, you know, compliment or gift um, but it also could be that you know he does not maybe he didn't have a leg issue so you wouldn't give your eyes to help someone's leg you know so it could very well have been his eye disease but the point is is that he's saying you guys received me and the grace and the love and the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel you received it so much that you were even willing in my physical infirmity that if it were possible, if there could be some sort of like, hey, I'll give you my eyes if it would help you, Paul. If he's saying basically if that were possible, you would have done it to the degree that we understand that their love and their reception of not only the message but the messenger. You get that? Are we, do, we, do you see that kind of? 
and he's, he's coming at them at a different angle. Because you remember in chapter, in chapter 3, he's, he came at them in verse 1. Foolish Galatians, who bewitched you um, that you should not obey the truth for whose eyes Jesus Christ have been evidently set forth, crucified amongst you? This only what I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh or religion or performance? Um, he's like basically saying you started by grace through faith. Why did you try to get better than grace through faith? Why did you downgrade by, uh, or from grace through faith? And so now he's coming at them at a little bit more of a different angle, trying to appeal to them by saying, look, I came to you, you received me as an angel, as a messenger, and my infirmity you weren't repulsed by. In fact, you embraced me so much so that if you could give me like a, a liver transplant, you would have done it, basically, is what he's saying. And then verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That's interesting. Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And sometimes the truth hurts, right? Sometimes I don't like to hear the truth. Um, sometimes I'm afraid to tell the truth too, right? Because of things like this. And here's the thing. I don't think we need to be conditioned to be afraid to tell the truth just because we're afraid of the reaction of people. I told Jen, I'm like, our kids are not training us, by the way, right? <laughs> they need to clean their room. They're not training it just because we're going to get kickback, right? And we're going to get some protesting and some grunts and some moans. They still get the truth, right? <laughs> kind of on a, on a larger scale, Paul's saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to be afraid of your reaction, um, I don't. I might. I might lose you on this one, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. You need to know this. I love you too much for me to withhold the truth. And so, he says um, in verse seventeen, they, meaning these people that are coming in to try to put them back into bondage, uh, back under the law of Moses, back into like like a spiritual Egypt situation. He says they zealously court you but not for good. And it is, isn't it interesting? You think about different lifestyles and different sinful sort of persuasions that are going on. There's a lot of recruitment going on. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of recruitment. I think about our young people and how they're being pursued and recruited by all types of vices and it could be something to do with drugs. It could be something to do with immorality. It could be <clears throat> something to do with identity. It's a lot of kids that are under uh, attack by recruitment. In this case, they, these, these Judaizers were trying to recruit them from Jesus and put them back under the, the religious bondage of the Judaizers. And he says, this isn't good. Um, uh, the, and he says also that you, they're doing this so that you would be zealous for them. Have you ever met someone that's in a cult that's really zealous? Sometimes a lot of cults put Christians to shame on the level of zeal. Have you noticed as much? Jesus says in Matthew 23, he's talking about the Judaizers. He says they'll, they'll go, they'll search land and sea to find one proselyte. He says they'll do that. Um, 
I've lived in a city where people would spend thousands of dollars on their own dime to do a two-year mission on somewhere on the, on the planet, learn a language, go there, stay there for two years, immersed in their culture, just to convert them, just to make them more miserable than they are. Because misery loves company. But have you ever noticed like the, the level of zeal of some religions? Right? I've been to some countries, and you guys have too, where, I mean... You remember I showed you India, that country that I go to? And by the way, I just had lunch with Tim uh, last week, and he sends his love and uh, hello. He was here to visit his dad from Texas, and he just got back from Sri Lanka. But we go to India together. And did you see the guys that have the hooks in their skin and their flesh, and they're just hanging there? And, they're, and they bounce up and down, and you could see their flesh stretch as they got the meat hooks. I know America does it as kind of like a dude, we're goth, we're alternative, we, we're from Portland or whatever. I don't know the culture that does it here, but there's people that are into this as a religious belief to the gods, and they're zealous. I mean, zealous for uh, that type of stuff. And I'm not saying, but, so they're zealous, and they're trying to recruit people, but not for a good thing, so that they could in turn become zealous for them. And it's this cyclical thing um, and then he says in verse 18, concerning zeal, he says, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing, always, but not only when I'm present with you. It's good to be zealous in a good thing. So today, what I'd like to talk about, I want to talk about weakness, I want to talk about truth, and I want to talk about um, zeal. So weakness, truth, and zeal. Try to keep it simple uh, here. WTZ. Sounds like a sports car. Weakness, truth, and zeal. Heavenly Father, I pray that you administer to your, your church, your people, your flock. You're our good shepherd. You're the head of the body. Uh, you give us your mind. You give us your thoughts. You move us. Uh, you inspire us. Zeal, Lord, oh, we can't manufacture that. I just pray that our hearts would burn within us, that we would uh, see you and just be motivated by gratitude of all that you've done for us. Not that we would work to get anything, but we would do what we do because we have everything in Christ and lack nothing. May that propel us. May the love of Christ constrain us, propel us, motivate us, um, and just encourage us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk about this weakness. So in these first verses here where we're talking about Paul saying, look, um, you know that through the infirmity of my flesh, I preached the gospel and, uh, and it, you didn't despise me. I wasn't rejected, but you received me as a messenger and uh, you would have plucked out your eyes for me uh, uh, and you would have given it, uh, given it to me. Uh, and he's basically, he's admitting his weakness and I want to say this, I want to start by a quote from a friend of mine who was a Jew that became a Christian, incidentally. Well, he knows the scriptures better than anyone I've ever met in my life. Um, and he says this, and I've, I ripped this quote off from him. His name is Jerry Benjamin, and he could come here, actually. He'll come here and speak to us for free. Uh, he'd love to. He's, I've been a friend of his for like 25 years. He says this, our strengths are no help to God and our weaknesses are no hindrance to God. That's a phenomenal truth. I'm not saying that's from the Bible, but think about it. Our strengths are no help to God. You know, sometimes we think we're the greatest thing, you know, since sliced bread after we got saved, hey God. 
you're lucky to have me in the kingdom, right? Look out, here I come. Uh, you know? So our strengths are no help to God. He doesn't save us because he needs us. Like, oh boy, I need, I need a Tom Brady in my kingdom, right? Better save me a Tom Brady. <laughs> he doesn't need Tom Brady. Um, he doesn't need anyone. Uh, so our strengths are no help to God, but here's another thing. Our weaknesses are no hindrance to God either. Because there's a lot of people that feel real timid, like, oh, I can't do this or that. That's the, that's the person God's looking for. I'm not able, I'm not qualified, <laughs> right? He, he equips those who he calls, and he empowers, and he gifts you, and he inspires you, and he trains you, and he edifies you, and he builds you up. You think of all the great leaders in the Bible. They had no heart for the task at hand. Moses, he didn't want to go to Pharaoh. And God said, don't worry, I'll be with you. I'll, I'll speak through you. I'll, I'll provide. Um, David, he didn't want to be the king. Remember that? He didn't want to do that. There's a lot of great leaders in the Bible that didn't want to be a leader in the first place. And they didn't want to serve. And they felt inadequate. And so our strengths are no help to God, but our weaknesses are no hindrance to God. And concerning this issue where, where Paul is concerned, did he want to be a Christian missionary? When you think about his testimony, no way, Hosea. He didn't, wasn't even thinking about that. He was doing quite well without com being commissioned to go and be um, a missionary to the Gentiles. That's the most unlikely group of people you would consider Paul to be sent to. So here's what he says, though, concerning his flesh and this ailment that we're talking about. Look at 2 Corinthians. You'll know this passage, but it's fitting and it's appropriate um, in context here. He says, concerning this thing, this this problem that he had physically he said i pleaded with the lord three times that it might depart from me and he said unto me my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness look you know there's a lot of like i was talking to someone the other day about um you, you know the, the healers and stuff like that that are going around and doing that and god could do any of that i'm not saying that he can't but i think it's ironic uh, where someone would come and, and set up a tent and have everyone come forward to heal them when they themselves can't even heal their own vision. They're still wearing glasses. Like, what? Hit your own forehead and get rid of the glasses. Um, <clears throat> all I'm saying is I'm not saying that they're right or wrong. All I'm saying is sometimes God's delays are not God's denials. And in this case, God was not answering this particular prayer and he was delaying big time because Paul was beseeching God, hey, take this problem from me, take this problem from me. God, if it's possible, take this problem. And God is the great physician and God could have done it, but God said, no, I'll just leave that, that condition for you, that thorn in the flesh, so that maybe possibly Paul would then not lean on his natural talents and natural strengths. He would need to lean into God and get some of that, that supernatural strength that was from God and not Paul. And so the verse continues on to say, Paul agrees. He, he learned that most gladly I will rather than boast in my infirmities, my problems, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's not a prayer that's really popular. 
<laughs> right? We like health, wealth, and prosperity. God, make me rich and skinny. Give me no problems. I never pay for my health insurance, but I never want to go to the doctor, right? We want this God do all that. Not any of this, right? But when you think about it, this is where Paul really started to lean in and started to, to tap into the power of Christ. Maybe some of his natural abilities were stripped away and he couldn't just kind of go on autopilot where he just really needed to have the power of Christ. Now, I'm saying that because he rolled into town uh, to the unlikely people that you'd think he'd be sent to. I would have thought, you know, pragmatically speaking, you know, business-wise thinking, send Paul to the Jews. But no, God sent him to the Gentiles. And so God could work through any willing person, any willing vessel. And it doesn't matter on your strengths. And it doesn't matter of your weaknesses. It matters about the power of Christ working in you and, th and through you. So it doesn't matter if you're a male or a female or a Jew or a Gentile. God even spoke through a donkey, a burning bush, right? Even the rocks cry out. Uh, or will cry out, and the heavens already declare the glory of God. All he wants from us is just a willing person. And so Paul was willing, and he went to the, to the Galatian region, and they received this gospel, and they were glad for the gospel, and now they're turning on Paul. They're turning on him. Because he's like, er, er, er. he's tapping the brakes. Wait a second, wait, why are you guys going back? What, who's, who's tricking you? Who's deceiving you? Who's pulling the wool over your eyes? Who's bamboozling you, so to speak? Who's, who's fooling you? Who's this religious, slick-talking, used car religious salesman that's trying to give you this high interest rate and no return? Who's selling you this lemon idea that you need to do? A, who's doing that? I came to you in weakness with, you know, like a beat-up old hoopty body. and <laughs> You received me, and then you received the message. Uh, and now why are you just rejecting me and rejecting the message and you're downgrading from Jesus? Why, why, why? Look at a couple of these quotes here. I've said this one before, but I want to say it again. Someone, it's anonymous and so fitting because the quote is, is <laughs> it's, uh, he's just saying, I'm just a nobody trying to tell an everybody about a somebody who could save anybody. And so it doesn't have to be anyone special. You don't have to have any super good talents you just need to be available and so paul was available there's another one this was by charles wesley he said god can save alone but he chooses not to save alone this isn't really a rhymey type it's not an easy one to remember but if you think about what he's trying to say can god save alone yeah does he need anyone no but it's, i think it's kind of interesting that god would say Basically, I'm commissioning you, the church. Go into all the world. Share the gospel. He wants us to be partakers of this activity. He wants us to co-labor, partner up with him as ambassadors of the king. He's commissioning, commissioning us. And it's not just the pastor. It's the people. It's the church. I'm just one. I'm just a hangnail, right, or whatever, a nose hair. Um, we're all a part of the body, and we all, you know, have been filled with the life of God, and he wants us to kind of participate in this. But I, I guess what I'm trying to point out on this idea of weakness is this, that the power is in Christ, it's not in Christianity, or not in human ability. 
not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. What is that, Zechariah? Um, but I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter, it won't be on the screen, so if you could please turn to this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Because when thinking about the Apostle Paul riding into town, all he had really was the scriptures in hand, rolled up in a scroll, and Christ in his heart. And he turned the community and the culture upside down. He didn't have halogen lights. He didn't have amplification. He didn't have a worship team, right? He didn't have projector screens. All he had was the scriptures in hand and Christ in his heart. And think about the zeal of this dude and evidently some, some physical problems that would have made me be like, no, I'll just stay home. He didn't have Netflix to stay home and binge watch anything either, right? He didn't have Google Maps to check the weather of which town he was going in. He didn't even have Google Maps to tell him which route to take. That's why he said, I die daily. You know what he's referring to in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that? He's like, if the resurrection's not true, why do I put my life in jeopardy? Everywhere I go, my life's in jeopardy. Why do I do it if the, the whole, the gospel's not true? So he rolls into town, scriptures in hand, Christ in his heart, and evidently that's enough to keep a, a, an event 2,000 years old still alive and filling churches across the world. Right? We're not following some fable, man. This guy, he was zealous. He believed this stuff. And he rolled into town, with not with gimmicks. Look, the power wasn't in his presentation. The power wasn't in like his you know, ability to persuade. He didn't go to the Dale Carnegie you know, methodology of how to win people. I don't know. He didn't have that sort of stuff. All he had was scriptures in hand and Christ in heart. And evidently, that was enough to turn a culture, a community, and century after century after century, lives being changed, rocked for time and eternity because of the simple message, right? So here we are gathered. Like, what does it mean to us? Is it just kind of, oh, we do church? There's a lot of places in America we just go to church, just do it. Tell me when to stand and sit and, you know, cross myself. And I'm not making fun of any religion. I'm just saying it's real people in certain situations, and maybe there's people that are just like the Galatians, going through the motions. Maybe they've went from relationship and they downgraded to religion. And that wasn't that way for Paul, but he realized that the power was not in some program or methodology. The power was in a person. So let's find that out. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, But unto them which are called both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You know the Greek word for power, dunamis, the same word we get for dynamite. Dynamite changes things, right? Just ask a mountain <laughs> when they're trying to create a mine or whatever. Um, dynamite changes things. Look at verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many um, mighty and not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound uh, the things which are mighty. The base things of the world um, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring 
uh, to not the things that are. But see, we want to be accepted by the world. We want to be kind of like the cool kids on the block. We want to water things down to make it more palatable to the world. We want to maybe alter the gospel a little bit to make it more, you know, acceptable and more tolerable. And, and basically, the Bible's saying, don't, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. Just, just link up with God, and even though you're despised and rejected and kind of like seeming insignificant, or nowadays, I mean, especially I hear this at my work, I'm surrounded by non-believers. They think the gospel's so irrelevant. One guy the other day said, people still believe that? He was just shocked. Like, really? People still believe that? And I'm like, whoa. And to me, I'm not like, sinner, and I got my, you know, my, my holy water spray gun, and shh, shh, shh. I'm not like that. I'm, I, it just grieves me like, man, I remember what it was like to be lost. I, didn't, I wasn't raised in church. I had that same idea. I was like, Jesus who? Noah who? The, I don't know anything you're talking about. I didn't, know, I didn't come from a religious home or a Christian home. I didn't know anything. So I'm not throwing stones at this guy. I'm like, man, I feel for you. <clears throat> That's how I want, once was. <clears throat> but um, so verse 29 so he's cho- God's chosen all these weak things and all these insignificant things that we don't want to be, but he says God's chosen those things so that no flesh should glory in his presence. So if a church is built and people are getting saved, it's not because of anything awesome that we've done. It's because of the awesome thing that Christ has done 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross for our sins, when he was buried, wait for it, Easter's coming, wait for it. And then he rose again from the dead. And if that isn't true, let's just shut the doors and say, turn off the lights and save the rent, right? If it's not true. But he says, so that no flesh would glory in his presence, verse 30, he says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who of God has made us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. So no one brags. No one could get into heaven and just kind of put their thumbs under their armpits and peacock around and saying it's because of anything they've done. Nothing good could we have manufactured to get ourselves any closer to God. He did it all. Verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a pretty good statement. So Paul's not throwing out his doctorate degrees or, (laughs) you know, he's got certificates to brag about. He's basically saying, I don't have any bragging rights except Christ and him crucified. That's what he leans on. That's what he's leaned into. He's learned through weakness to depend on that reality. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And this is a totally different church, a totally different group of people with a totally different set of problems. He says in verse 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In other words, if you got saved, you can't say it was because of Paul like argued you into the kingdom because he was a great apologist. Right? Like, that's such a trendy thing. That was the last, what, 20 years of Paul apologetics that's cool if you want to just you know if you want to do that that's fine um but he didn't lean on apologetics you know just telling telling everyone arguing against the evolutionists and the creationists and you know he wasn't he didn't have that he just had like i have christ him crucified i'm going to keep it simple right to the power source christ 
Christ the power of God. Christ the wisdom of God. It says, so that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Weakness. Weakness reveals the power source. And the power source was Christ, as Paul concluded. All right? This is where he could say in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. And so this, this power source, I think, is best experience for people that are maybe stripped of some of their strengths, right? So that they are placed into a position to where they need to depend on Christ. And how many of us want to depend on Christ? How many of the Jews in the wilderness wanted to wait for God to give manna the next day? Because remember, if you hoarded manna, the, the food that came down from heaven, how long would that last? What was the shelf life for manna? Does anyone know? One day. And how many of you would have rather have had Costco back in the wilderness? Like, dude, I'll just load up in bulk. Forget this whole I, every day I got to depend on God thing. Forget that, right? So we're the very, we come from the same lump of clay. No one wants to really trust. We want to kind of, tr- let me do air quotes. We kind of trust, we trusted God for heaven and salvation, but that's for eternal life. Trusting God for daily life, eh, that's a whole nother thing right? I'm, 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 sa- I'm putting myself in that same situation. So sometimes we're stripped of our strengths so that when we're weak, we could see that he's strong so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. And so weakness, when we're weak, we experience Christ's strength. And let me go to the Old Testament to quote Isaiah, and you'll get this passage. You know this one, but let, let's, let's kind of jog the memory a little bit Go back to Isaiah 40. It'll be on the screen. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of earth, neither faints nor is weary. Look, I drank an energy drink this morning. God never needs a Red Bull. He never does, right? He's unlimited. When you think about God, you've got to think about, because we're finite, it's hard to think in infinite increments. Is there an increment to infinity? It just has no beginning. It has no end. So when you think about his wisdom, it's not like he's getting smarter. When you think about his power, it's not like he needs to rest and recharge and get more power. When you think about his omnipresence, it's not like he's, he's filling the universe. He's in the universe and outside the universe. It's hard to think about God as a finite creature to think about infinity, but he doesn't rest he doesn't need rest. He doesn't need to go to school. He doesn't need advice. He doesn't need to ask someone for permission. This is what it means to be God, and this is why it's so tempting to, to have someone tell you, oh, if you do this, you could be like God. That's pretty tempting stuff. Ultimate power. Okay, he says, neither is faint, neither is weary. His, under, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. He gives life to everyone, right? <laughs> he didn't generate it. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. And all the, all the elderly people are like, yeah, youths, even you too, right? <laughs> and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, look at that, that deferment, that trust. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings, uh, like eagles, 
They shall run and not be weary. That'd be rad to see a super fast eagle running like a cheetah. You know, I don't need to fly. I could run fast. I don't think that's what it means at all. I'm just thinking out loud. And they shall walk and not faint. And so the idea here is that, yes, we're weak, but we have a power source that is much greater than us, that he doesn't ever run out. And we could learn as, you know, as we are the vine to tap into, or we're the branches to tap into the vine. And that's where we'll find our strength and our substance. You know this Tim Tebow verse underneath the eyes? Philippians 4.13, anyone? I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not that he coined it, it's from the Bible, right? I'm just, I'm just saying a lot of athletes. Um, uh, who is that a UFC fighter we just watched? John Jones, right here, boom. Tattooed right across his chest. Not that that makes him a Christian, just because he's got a Bible verse, but evidently he's trying to say, like, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including, you know, knocking people out, I guess. Um, but you get the idea, it's like, the, the idea is trusting in Christ. But you're like, no, nah, I got this, Jesus. That's what the Galatians said. I don't need you, Jesus. Eh, this is easy. That's what, they, that's what most people say. And Paul was like, I was put in a position where I had to trust in Christ. And that was the best thing for me. We don't, think, we don't think in those terms. Your nephew that just got in an accident, I don't think for a moment God did that to him. But I will say this, he might be put in a place where he's going to trust in Christ in a, in a certain way that he's never trusted him before. Um, where's Debbie? Is she in here? The new grandma? She just has a new grandbaby, and praise the Lord for that. The baby has jaundice, and for those of you parents that have had babies, right, I was freaked out when I heard our baby had jaundice. I didn't know what jaundice was. I'm like, what is jaundice, you know? <laughs> um, and we had a pediatrician, is that the baby doctor, that went to our church, and they said, Neil, don't worry about it. Just put the baby in the window, give it some sunlight, and it'll be fine. I'm like, are you serious? And his, I'm like, something so naturally, like, yeah, don't freak out. It's, we, we tell that, he's like, we, because he's one of those. He's like, we tell that to everyone, and it's going to be fine. And, um, so why am I even saying all that? I don't know. Strength, weakness, um, something about depending on God in there somewhere. Um, I could do all things through Christ. All right, turn in Galatians chapter 4, chapter, <laughs> this will be point number two, and th then we're going to move faster. And he says, have I therefore, verse 16, Galatians 4, 16, um, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Like, why are you turning on me just because I'm telling you that it's all about Jesus? You were saved by grace, walk by faith. Why is that an insulting message? You better, you better check your own inventory, too. How, how does the message of Christ alone rub you? Right? How does that message grate against your scorecard? Because, see, grace doesn't offend those that feel like they're losing. Grace only offends those who think they're winning. See, Grace doesn't offend those who say, I'm sick, I need a physician. Grace is only offensive to those that say, I have no need of a physician. I'm doing just fine. 
that's who grace is kind of rubbing the wrong way. And so Paul's basically saying, have I become your enemy because I'm simply telling you the truth? It's interesting, J. Vernon McGee, you guys have heard of him, uh, the Bible boss. Um, he, on this passage, he said on his pulpit, and he, was, he pastored in L.A. Some of you, I had relatives that went to his church. Maybe some of you have been under his ministry or tutelage or whatever. Uh, I used to listen to him all the time. Le- love, love, love J. Vernon McGee. Evidently on his pulpit, um, he had... Uh, sir, that we would see Jesus inscribed on his pulpit. But you know what he really wanted on his pulpit? This verse, and he admitted it. He told one of his deacons that did all this, he wanted this verse. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He wanted that on the front of the pulpit where the people see, right? And that's a great pastor verse because that's why it says against a pastor, don't receive accusation except out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. You want to know why the Bible says that? Because the pastor is under attack sometimes because he has to be the messenger of truth sometimes. Hey, look, going the wrong way. Look, Chloe, you shouldn't use your cell phone in church or take phone calls. <laughs> I'm just kidding, girl. I love you. Uh, <laughs> um, it's my daughter. So if I become your enemy because to tell you the truth, daughter, I love you. So the pastor tells things to people that sometimes is uncomfortable, and that's why um, Paul's saying, look, did I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? But look, we need to be lovers of the truth. You know this from, it's not going to be on your screen, but I know you know this, John eight thirty two, You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I know you know that. So it's truth that gives us freedom, and it's error that gives us bondage. And you know that the truth is a who, it's not a what. Jesus said, um, if you want to go to heaven, you must know this. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. So we're a people of the truth. But we're also people immersed and identified by God's love. We are identified by his truth, but we're also identified by his love. So Paul loved these people so much, and he loved the Lord enough to tell them the truth of the error that was putting them back into bondage. And we're to do this in such a way that we speak this truth in love. You know this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. The idea is like a reed. It's like a, like a really you know, weak weed that lives by the side of the river. And it's like the tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceit and deceitful plotting. See, this was the problem that was happening in the church. And he says this, but speak the truth in love so that we could grow up in him into all things into him who is the head, even Christ. Look at that phrase, grow up. Just because you grow old doesn't mean you grow up right? There's some pretty immature grown-ups. <laughs> it's like, okay, so we've been in church for how many years now, right? And we're still harboring bitterness and unforgiveness, and we're still got cliques, and we still got gossip, and we still got, that's what little children do at school, right? So sometimes it's easier to grow up, or it's easier to grow old than to grow up. And so he's, he's saying he wants this church and he wants Christians to grow up in Christ. And it comes by having the truth spoken in love said to us. And a lot of times it comes from the pulpit. 
So have I become your enemy yet? Because I tell you the truth. <laughs> Does that make people that are grown up hate me? Look, I, I say things that need to be said to me or have said to me, and I don't think that I'm better than anyone. You know that. I feel like level at the, the foot of the cross, but I don't want to be the enemy because I'm telling the truth. And Paul's like, hey, look, it's all about Jesus. It's not about your religious performance. It's all about um, what he's done for you and what he wants to do through you. Stop trying to earn what you already got in Christ. Is that offensive? Why? Why is that offensive? I don't get it. So, but we got to speak the truth in love. I quoted this I don't know, maybe a few months ago, but I want to bring it up because I don't know if you remembered it or not. Look at what this statement says. Love without truth is sentimentality, yet truth without love is brutality. You know what this is trying to state is you need both. Because if you just have love without truth, it's just sentimental. It's like a grandpa that just excuses everything. Oh, yeah, kids will be kids, right? You can be very, like, sentimental about things. Just, you know, in the name of love, you know, just whatever. But look, and if it's just truth, you just give people the, the raw facts. I'm just giving you the data. I'm just going to speak the truth in you, right? I'm giving you the facts, Jack, and you don't have any love? You know people, right? How well do you receive that kind of instruction like a drill sergeant, but I'm telling you the facts, right? Then that's just brutality, and people could really use and abuse the Bible with people, Right? You think people are knocking down the doors because Christians have this attitude towards the world? I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to speak my mind. You know, God hates the homosexuals and um, you bless God and bless God and bless God. Really? Is that, the, I mean, I, I know he hates particular sins, but does he hate the sinner? No. So people, sometimes when they're speaking the truth, they're not even really speaking the whole truth. Um, so he says in this quote, Steve Pettit, my good friend, he says, Truth without love is brutality. So the Bible says we need both. We need to speak the truth and love. You've heard these two statements. I know you have. The first one is, you may win the argument, but you may lose the person. You ever heard that? You ever tried to, you know, uh, even in apologetics, if we go back to that, you could like speak the truth and you got all the facts and you got all your timelines and you, you just totally, you, you, just, you just argued and won that, won that battle, but you lost the war type of thing. <laughs> you didn't win the person. You won the argument. Have you ever heard this phrase? People do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've heard that? People really don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've heard that? Have you heard that? Raise your hand if you heard that. <laughs> That's a hard one to like, put into practice. Because we want to be a people that, I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to speak my mind. You know? Well, check yourself a little bit let's let's make sure we're motivated by love why because words matter what we say and why we say it it matters so let us be a people um not too sentimental that we don't speak the truth but yet let's not be a people that are so unloving that our truth seems simply brutal so may we be a people who are lovers of the truth and love us, love others enough to speak the truth in love so that others may benefit. That's the way Apostle, the Apostle Paul was trying to explain to them. May we be a people who understand that both our words that we say, what we say, and how we say it matters. I'm going to kind of cruise along these passages here as we speed up. But look, look up on the screen. Just some thoughts uh, pulled from the Bible about words. 
Uh, David saying this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 19, he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength, my redeemer. Interesting that he says strength there when, in connection with his words. Psalm 39, 1, I said, I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue, my words, what I say. I will keep my mouth with the bridle. You know the, what James, was it chapter 3 or chapter 4, who could tame the tongue? right? Who can bridle their tongue? He also says in James, be quick to hear and slow to speak, right? Um, Psalm 141, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth to keep the door of my lips. That'd be a good one to put into practice, right? Even inside, even behind closed doors in your family, have you ever noticed, like, you've said some things regrettable before? I have. Sorry, kids, <laughs> right? I don't want to be that. I just, Lord, help me constantly, to, to keep watch over my mouth because it matters what we say. Um, God, he, he kind of goes on this rant a little bit, and I say that in the best way in Proverbs chapter 10, talking about our lips, and I'm only going to pull out a few of them. All of Proverbs is laced with, um, you know, the timing of your words, how you say words. It's more fitting than apples of gold, and he like, makes all these eloquent comparisons about how valuable your words are. But in chapter 10 of Proverbs, and uh, Solomon given some wisdom here, look at this. He says in Proverbs 10, the mouth of the righteous man is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Hatred stirs up strifes, but love covers sins. You could almost say that hatred stirs up strifes. So like you, the, the person that's speaking the truth without love, stirring it up right? Attacking people because they're not doing that particular sin, but they're hiding another sin in their life that they don't want you to talk about. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers. Love, love comes alongside. Love uh, bears all things. You know, you know 1 Corinthians 13. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 20, the tongue of the just is as choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little worth. Um, Proverbs 10, verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. That's an interesting passage. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaks forwardness. I love a New Testament uh, admonition and encouragement to us both. Ephesians 4, 29, he's saying, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that may minister grace to the hearers. That's a great one. Saying things that build people up, not tear them down, right? And you know, it doesn't need to be exclusive to those that have this gift, but there's a, there's a spiritual gift in the Bible in the New Testament, the gift of encouragement. Boy, don't you like those people, right? <laughs> um, and you don't have to wait for that gift. You could just on purpose try to look for ways to encourage people. That would be awesome, Right? Let me give you this side note challenge. Why don't, today, maybe? I don't want to give you like a long week to think about it. Maybe today, through a text, an email, whatever, even in here, or on your way out, or whatever, whoever you meet, maybe, maybe use your mouth to edify someone, to encourage someone. Just speak a good word of encouragement to someone. Look for an opportunity, right? How about the, this one? You already read it probably. Let your speech... Be always uh, with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. 
But think about that part A of that verse. Your speech is always with grace, but seasoned with salt. You got a little pappies coming out of your mouth, a little Lowry's, you know. <laughs> That's kind of weird, but... What is, does salt make you um, satisfied and you're like, oh, I, I'm good, I don't need a drink, or does salt make you thirsty? Makes you thirsty, right? And I was thinking about that, I'm like, man, if you've got gracious words and you've got healthy words and they're words of life and they're edifying words and you're speaking grace and imparting truth into people and you're doing it in a way that's loving, they're going to hunger and thirst after what you got. They're going to be like, where's that coming from? Where's that source? right? <laughs> That's such a rare thing. And the last thing, we'll close, we'll close everything down with this last thought. Galatians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. So Roman numeral 3 in our last point. So we talked about weak, we talked about truth, and now we're going to talk about zeal. And he says, hey, look, it's, a good, it's good to be zealous in a good thing. Because he just got done saying, like, they're zealously pursuing you. I don't know what was in it for them, but they, he said, so that you would in turn be zealous for them, but it was all wrong. And um, he says, but he's not attacking zeal. He's just attacking the object of your zealousness. It's like worship, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. There's, you know, there's false worship, vain worship, and there's true worship. What's the object of your worship? What's the object of your zeal? Do we have any zeal? My father-in-law, who also, he's a pastor. He's been a pastor longer than I've been alive. But um, he, I forget the phrase. I get, you'll get the gist. But he's like, give me, someone on, give me a, a log on fire that I could stoke a little bit rather than a wet log any day that I have to ignite. I guess that comes with wisdom. You know, there's people that are just like, really? 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 Hey, yeah, hello. You there? You know? Uh, mm-hmm. Amen. Praise the Lord, Pastor. Maybe. I'm just saying not like in their physical chronological response, in their spiritual zeal response to where some people just are not too easily moved or stoked or excited about Jesus. <laughs> and that's just okay. Whatever, that's where they're at. Um, I remember my friend, you could put this quote up, Carl Lozo, do you guys remember, um, Chloe, Adam, you guys remember um, Carl and Mandy from Utah? This guy, Carl, um, I just led him to the Lord in prison, right? I wasn't in prison. I was on the other side of the glass. <laughs> Don't judge me. Maybe I was there for preaching the gospel, right? Um, but anyways, um, I did give him the gospel. He got saved, and then we would communicate through mail, and I was discipling him through mail, he got out, came to church, led his whole family to Christ, led his whole kids to Christ. We baptized them. They were in the church, and we were helping them get on their feet. He was so zealous for God that uh, he, he, we started this addictions ministry in church, and he was trying to reach other people that maybe were coming out of prison and jail and uh, maybe struggled with uh, you know, being dependent on, on chemicals to cope with life. And, and so uh, we started this addictions ministry in the church, and man, he was just, he was at it. And then when we left Utah, uh, he gave me this quote. He sent me a long, loving email because we knew him for so long. Um, and he said this, in this email, he said, I just want to be as good of a saint as I was a sinner. And you know what he meant by that? 
he was so zealous for sin. Like, he was in prison because he was, think about it, he was so zealous for scheming and conniving, and, and he'd been there multiple times. And I think that was like the second time he was in prison, and he didn't want to go back again. Um, so he was a really good sinner, right? And he had a lot of passion for sin. And he's saying now that he's saved, he wants to be as zealous for Christ and the things of God as he was for the things of the world. That's all he's saying, really. And that really struck with me, right? Let's look at, let's define the word and then we'll close, we'll close everything up and have the Lord's Supper here in a minute. But zeal, you'll see the definition up there on the screen. To burn with zeal, to be heated or to boil with envy, hatred, anger. See, it also has like a bad connotation to it. In a good sense, to be zealous in the pursuit of good, to desire earnestly, pursue, desire one earnestly, to strive after, to busy oneself about, to exert oneself for one that he may not be torn from me. I don't know what that means, but um, uh, to be the object of the zeal of others, to be zealously sought after. And I've, I'm thinking about the, um, the people that were on the road to Emmaus after Jesus rose from the dead, and he gave that message. And what did they say? Did not our hearts burn within us? <coughs> you remember after you got saved how excited you were for the things of God? Remember that? And here you are today. So it obviously stuck. And so maybe, you know, I'm just stoking the fire, but the Holy Spirit is the one that's really the one uh, that's in you that did not, you hear about Christ and you read the Bible, <clears throat> you hear a great message, you read a great book, you have a, uh, I had lunch with Tim the other day, I was just telling you, it was like so perfect, the timing, and, and like I was excited about that, we had great fellowship, uh, we had El Toritos, is where we ate, um, you've heard that on the radio, the commercial, anyways, um, and it wasn't about the food, it was about the fellowship, but my point is this, zeal for the things of God, and not just the things of God, but the thing itself, which is God, is the main thing. I'm going to put these, few, put all these quotes up here, and it's, it'll be all up on the screen. Um, look at these quotes. What gets your attention gets you. So true? What gets your attention gets you. And the Bible says this, as a person thinks in their heart, so is he. Right? And the last one, we become what we behold. These are all truisms. Just test your own self. You know? <laughs> what you're really preoccupied with, whatever gets your attention, uh, gets you. And imagine if it was God. Imagine if we put as much attention into God as we do other things. Right? I'm not saying like if you pay attention to other things that's, that's wrong. It's really hard to multitask. I get it. When you're at work, you've got to think of those things. But whatever gets our attention gets us. What's really the object of our zeal? What's really the thing that motivates us? I remember um, just recently this guy at work, he sits next to me, and um, he goes to church. So I'm not, all, I'm not surrounded by total atheists. There's a, there's a Christian scattered throughout. Uh, there's one or two, you know. And this one guy, he sits next to me, and um, I have a Bible at my desk at work. And believe it or not, I got the Bible from my work. We were moving from an old building to a new building, and they had a stack of Bibles they were giving away, and I'm like, oh, cool. And so I usually just look at it on my phone, um, and I just took, a, I took that Bible, put it on my desk, and he asked me a few questions, and I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. 
I turned to it. He's like, oh, yeah, well, what about this? I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, and he's like, you know, and I'm just doing that. And he's like, man, I want to know the Bible like you. He's only been a Christian for a year. And, you know, <laughs> it's like I've been a Christian for a long time. And I've been, you know, whatever. Um, but I said, I wasn't like bragging or anything. I said, here's the thing. You're really good at what you do. He's a DJ, and he's really good at audio stuff. And I said, you're super good at DJing. That record scratching stuff. Um, he gets gigs all the time, and he's been a record scratcher forever, and he's super good at it. And I said, how did you get good at it? He's like, man, I just put in the time and this and that. And I said, why? Because someone told you to or because you, you wanted to? He said, because I wanted to. Like, that's the same thing, man. I just wanted to know God. I wanted to, to know God. I wanted to know his word more than anything. And so it just it has to be a passion, you know. I'm not saying it's always that way. There's a lot of things that are shiny, like lures. Good message, by the way, for Awana. Um, Eric brought in some lures, and I'm like, I'm a, like, <laughs> all the Awana kids were chasing after it, and he's like, you're missing the point. Quit chasing the, the <laughs> and he took the hooks out, but it was this, it was this minnow or whatever type of fish it was. Um, I was trying to, tr- and it was it working for the kids? Um, and me too, but um, that was a good illustration because it was getting their attention. His, his whole point was the devil's going to throw you a bunch of lures to get your focus off of Christ and how easy it is to get our focus off of Christ. But it's good to be zealous in a good thing. I want to close with this last verse. And I think it's, pretty cool that this last verse starts with looking for that blessed hope and I, I thought about that when was the last time I was really looking for that blessed hope sometimes I'm looking for the next series on Netflix to be honest with you right I'm like eh, I'm done with this one boring what's the next one right <laughs> what are we looking for look this is saying looking for the blessed hope which is the glorious appearing of, look at who Jesus Christ is. He's the great God and Savior. It's a deity verse. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. All your sins are forgiven. All of them. The pure unto, purify unto himself a peculiar people. Some of us are super peculiar. But here's what we do. Here's what kind of makes us peculiar, that we're zealous for good works. Not to do good works to get into heaven. Not to do good works to make ourselves righteous. Not to do good works to get our sins forgiven. Not to do good works to, you know, make us fit for the kingdom of God. But to do good works because we have everything and lack nothing because of what Jesus has done. And so, um, again, full circle, we're back to being zealous for doing these things out of an attitude of gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Right? So, in conclusion here, and then we'll do the Lord's Supper. um, Weakness. Let's learn to lean into whatever it is, our weakness, our infirmity, so that we could see Christ in and through it. Right? And then truth. This will be the, there's a slide that'll be a concluding slide up there. And then truth. Let's love the truth, but yet also speak the truth in love. You know what I call that? The Bible's called a sword, right? Dip your sword 
and a bucket of love before you go out and start lopping heads off in the name of Jesus. Seriously. <clears throat> and then lastly, zeal. Let's be zealous for the king and the kingdom. But I can't tell you to be zealous, right? Like, hey, go be zealous. I could be zealous about telling you to be zealous, but you'd be like not zealous about me being zealous to tell you to be zealous. Whatever. You know what I mean? Because you know the word enthusiasm? The Greek is in theos. You know what theos is? God. Enthusiasm is to, means basically to be, to be in God. You're so, you're so excited to, for God to be in you and for, for you to be in God that you just want to tell everyone about it. I can't teach enthusiasm. I can't teach zeal. I can't. I could give you disciplines. Okay, you want to know the Bible like I, how I know the Bible? Here's a, here's a plan for you. Do this, do that, do this, do that, and then you'll know. No one told me that. I wanted to know the Bible. I wanted to know the Lord. It's just desire. It's passion. It's zeal. And if you, it's like you have God. You're in God. You just have to really practice the presence of who you already have. There was 12 disciples. Jesus invited them all. Only three wanted to really be with Jesus. And out of those three, only one really wanted to lay on his chest and to be at the foot of the cross. He's not better. He's like, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's not better. He just wanted to experience more of the Jesus that everyone else had the same access to. Zeal. Right? You're still going to heaven. You're still saved. <laughs> right? So um, let's do this. Let's pray, and then I'll have the ushers come forward, and then we'll, we'll look at the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful church. I thank you, Lord, that even through our weakness, we could see your strength. And Lord, I know sometimes we're blinded by our ability so that we don't see that your grace is sufficient. Lord, I know you don't, you don't cause like trials and tribulations, but through the trials and tribulations, as life comes at us, it squeezes the life and the power from within us out of us. So Lord, we welcome that. Uh, it's hard, but we welcome that. And Lord, also for um, truth, um, help us to be a people that really speak the truth in love. And for zeal, help us to be a people that fight monotony, fight religiosity. And we, we look for the genuine. We look for the authentic. We really want to know you and to make you known because we're passionate about you. We're so thankful. We're so zealous for what you've done. We just can't contain it. We're not content with status quo. We want to know you more, and we want to uh, experience and express your life. Um, in the short time that we have under the sun, which is all vanity anyways. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I thank you in your name. Amen. The ushers have come forward. So I'm going to turn in a portion of Scripture as we observe the Lord's communion. And um, if you want to follow along, I'll be in 1 Corinthians uh, 11. And I'm going to read just where Jesus makes reference to the body and then the blood. And then um, I'll have Walt, if you'll, you'll thank the Lord for the body 
And then, um, Joe, if you'll thank the Lord uh, for the blood. But let me read the verses, and then we'll go ahead and pass out the elements, um, and then we'll thank the Lord. But I'll read all of them. It says in verse 23 of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks He broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And he's going to say this about the the blood, but I want to just say this. Communion is a time of remembrance of Jesus. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of what he has done for us. Right? And I know you're going to be tapping the brakes a little bit. Yeah, but, 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 but. Make this a time of celebration about what Jesus has done for us. Remember what all the scripture has said about what Jesus has done for us. And then he says, after the same manner, he also took the cup, and when he'd supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes back, right? So what we're going to do is we're going we're to pass out the bread, and then uh, we're going to come back, and then Walt, you'll thank the Lord for the, the bread, the body, and then we'll go to the cup, all right?